morning to you all this morning. He is coming back. If you would please turn to Mark chapter 13 with me. I'm guessing that I'm not the only person in the room who likes to check the weather every single day. Uh, I just like to know what the weather is going to be. Even if I'm not going to spend the day outdoors, I still like to know. It just feels good to have some idea of what it's going to be. Uh, And it doesn't matter how often the weatherman is wrong. I can't help myself but be interested to know. I want to hear what kind of an educated guess he has to say. In fact, just yesterday, I checked the weather and it said no rain in the day. And then I was working and I heard tinking noise and I went outside and it was hailing outside. So it wasn't rain, Scott pointed out. <laughs> the weatherman wasn't wrong, it didn't rain. Uh, I think there's something in us that craves to know the future. We want to know what's going to happen. In fact, sometimes we have anxiety over not knowing the future. I think it's easy for us to think that if we simply knew the future, we would have less anxiety. Uh, but you know, that's not necessarily true. Sometimes knowing the future could actually give you more anxiety. Imagine if the Lord were to tell you on a certain particular day that you were going to die. He told you exactly how you were going to die. Do you think you would sleep better or worse that night? I don't think I would sleep at all. God in his wisdom does not tell us many things about the future. Now, God knows it all. God knows every single detail. There's nothing that God doesn't know. He knows it all, but he doesn't share it all. But there are some things that he does share. In his wisdom, he does share some things. And in scriptures, we find that God does reveal many things about the future. Some of the basic things that he has revealed to us is that one day he will judge the world. There is coming a day in which God will bring every single human being before his judgment throne. There will be a judgment. We learn as well, we wouldn't know this unless God told it to us, that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming again. We also know that there is going to be a resurrection of our physical bodies. We know that for those who have trusted in Christ, we will live with God forever. Those are some of just the basic truths of Christianity, and they are wrapped up in our great hope of our inheritance with God forever in Christ. As we press into Mark 13 in more detail, uh, we're going to see that Jesus is going to talk about some other future events. Uh, He's going to tell his followers, we'll see this here in some of these verses, that there are hard days ahead. Uh, The words of Jesus are trustworthy. The weatherman might get it wrong, but Jesus doesn't. We can trust the words that Jesus has to say. So, in the last week, we spent some time picking low-hanging fruit. Well, now we're going to go back and go through in detail and and look at these verses. I'm going to start with the first eight verses today as we jump into Mark 13. Let's read this together. Not out loud together, but read along with me. Uh, Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Jesus said to him, 
Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left on, we, there will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, "Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished?" And Jesus began to say to them, "See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, "I am He." And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard. I'll read through verse 13 as well in here. Uh, they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. The gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father, you are wise, and we trust you in your wisdom to share with us some things and hide some other things from our knowledge. Lord, I pray that you would help us to walk in this world as your children. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to come and save us, to bring us to you. I pray that you would help us to be faithful in our day, Lord. You tell us of many hard things that will take place. And Lord, we have experienced so many hard things in our lives already. We ask that you would be our portion in this world. That you would help us to be satisfied in you be waiting on you, Lord. Supply everything we need by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So we bring these first eight verses together. I think the main call for us here is to keep your eyes on Jesus through many troubles. It'll be a call not just for this, but other passages we'll see. But the call here is to keep your eyes on Jesus through many troubles. We're going to look at these many troubles in this passage through two prophecies that Jesus will give here. Jesus is going to give a prophecy concerning the temple, and then he's going to give a prophecy concerning the world. There's going to be uh, two prophecies we'll look at here. In the first couple of verses, we see a prophecy for the temple. Uh, we've just finished up Mark chapter 8 on our, excuse me, 12 on our way through the Gospel of Mark. And the last story we were considering was the, the story of the widow and her offering and the commendation that Jesus gives to her in her generosity. Uh, that's the last thing that Jesus says in the temple that day. Uh, in Mark 13, 1, uh, we find Jesus leaving the temple. And as he's walking out, one of his disciples, and Mark doesn't tell us who that disciple is, but one of his disciples says, look at these incredible stones. He's wondering and marveling at the, the stones, these magnificent stones that the temple is made out of. And uh, the temple that he's describing here was marvelous. From historical accounts, it was incredible. Uh, this temple 
in Jerusalem is often called Herod's Temple because about 50 years prior, maybe about um, 40 years prior, uh, Herod had gone to the temple that had been there. If you'll remember when the Jews returned from exile into Israel, they rebuilt a temple. There's weeping and there's rejoicing at the same time because the temple is so much smaller than Solomon's temple. Well, Herod, uh, for various reasons, thought he could do better than the temple that was there. He exhumed it right down to the, the stones, took everything out, and rebuilt this monstrous temple, huge complex, uh, covered dozens of acres, uh, made a great building. Uh, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian at the time, survived the revolt in the 60s, and he, he comments that some of the stones that went into just the retaining wall of this building were 60 feet long, just these massive stones. And there's uh, a stone by an archway just a little off from there that a lot, a lot of people think was, used to be part of the wall itself. The, this, this one single stone weighs a million pounds. Uh, it was an incredible engineering and construction feat to build this temple. It was huge and elaborate and gorgeous. Uh, and furthermore, it was up on the Temple Mount, so you could see it from all over the place. Uh, the circumference around it was about a mile, and you could have contained 12 football fields inside of it. It's a big and impressive place. Uh, it's no wonder that one of the disciples would point out to Jesus its grandeur. Uh, now, one might expect Jesus at least to agree and move on. Uh, but we've already seen in the last few chapters of Mark's gospel, that Jesus is not impressed with the people who are running the place. And furthermore, Jesus isn't even impressed with the physical uh, temple itself here. I think it's ironic that in this scene, we see the true dwelling place of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Emmanuel, God with us. We see the true dwelling place of God leaving the temple, which was supposed to be a picture of him. Uh, you might say that the temple was never more full of the presence of God than when Jesus Christ was in it. What does Jesus have to say about this temple? He speaks a prophecy that I have to imagine sent chills down the spine of his disciples. He says that the temple is going to be destroyed uh, and that Destruction is going to be so complete that there's not going to be a single stone left upon another. This grand and majestic building is going to experience what SpaceX would call a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. I don't know if you followed that in the news at all. Uh, that's a nice way of saying it blew up. Uh, this, this building is going to be completely destroyed. Now, we're people who weren't alive at the time. We weren't there, and as people who weren't there, it can be easy to underestimate just how big of a claim this was. Uh, this is a huge claim for a few reasons. First of all, Jesus is making a prophecy in saying this, uh, and it sets up his words to be tested. Uh, will his words come to pass or not? Uh, to people alive at that time, it was no foregone conclusion that the temple would be destroyed. Uh, if Jesus were wrong about it, that would make him a false prophet. But he was profoundly right. 
Uh, this poor building isn't going to be completed for more than a couple decades before it's going to be destroyed. Uh, the end date of this temple was 70 AD. The zealots in Israel in 66 led a revolt against Rome. They had some sort of independence in a war state for a few years until 70 AD when they got absolutely crushed. Romans destroyed uh, Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus here. Uh, there are pictures, in fact, of the or, uh, carvings of the Romans carrying out the menorah out of the temple in the destruction of 70 AD. It's a completely bold claim that Jesus has made here, and he proves himself to be a true prophet. Um, further, it's also a radical claim uh, because there wasn't much more sacred, literally, to the Jews than the temple. The temple was the centerpiece of their religion, and the claim that the temple would be destroyed could get you in hot water. In fact, in the trial of Jesus that we'll see in Mark 15, his claims of the destruction of the temple get brought up against him in his trial. But Jesus was right. At the outset, as we're looking at Mark 13 and going to be moving more into it, I think this should encourage us about Jesus and what he says about the future. If he was right about the temple, something so concrete and tangible and significant, then we can trust his words about other things. You know, a lot of people who claim to know the future uh, or who claim to read palms or whatever, they like to give very vague ideas about the future, things that you know, could be interpreted one way or the other to kind of hedge their bets. Uh, that's not what Jesus is doing here. When he claims the destruction of the temple, uh, it, it's not as if you could interpret that a different way. That's, it's going to happen or it's not going to happen. Uh, in fact, Mark himself in the writing of this gospel is probably writing somewhere in the 50s or the 60s AD, probably before the temple has been destroyed. And so even him in recording this is putting that forward. He has such trust in the words of Jesus that he's going to record it. And uh, it does turn out to come to pass. The temple is destroyed. Uh, the temple that's built here really was built to last. Uh, honestly, it probably would still be around today if it hadn't been destroyed. But when the words of Jesus said that it would be destroyed, it was coming down. Uh, all of the things of this world will pass away, but the words of the Lord Jesus Christ will continue forever. So we see here a word about the temple, a prophecy concerning the temple. Uh, we should catch up with Jesus then in verses 3 and 8 as he's leaving Jerusalem. Let's look at verses 3 to 8 and see a prophecy for the world. In verse 3, we see Jesus on the Mount of Olives. It says that he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple. The Mount of Olives is about two miles east of Jerusalem. And from the Mount of Olives, you would have had an incredible view of Jerusalem and of the temple itself. In fact, the temple is oriented to the east. And so, uh, Josephus said that from, uh, part, I think it's the Mishnah, says that from the temple, uh, from the Mount of Olives, eastward to Jerusalem, you could actually see down into the temple and into the sanctuary itself. It would have been an incredible view of the temple. And here Jesus is sitting opposite. Um, remember, this is the place where he rides down on the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, he's, he's sitting here and he's speaking about the temple and the events to come. 
his disciples come, says uh, Peter and James and John and Andrew, and they ask him privately. They've, they've come, they've been in the great crowd of Jerusalem, and now they're in a little more quiet, secluded place. They want to ask Jesus for further details. They say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? They've got some questions for him. Uh, I think the disciples have understood that the destruction of the temple will come with other cataclysmic events. Uh, Maybe you could put it this way. If the temple in Israel is going to be destroyed, there is going to be a lot of Jewish blood shed around it. Uh, If the temple was going down, people weren't going to sit around and just watch it happen. Uh, In fact, in Matthew's parallel, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 3, uh, we're given more details. The disciples say, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Uh, So they're asking more than just about the destruction of the temple. They are certainly asking for that, but they're asking for more than that, so we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus responds. He tells them a lot more than just the destruction of the temple. In verses 5 to 8, Jesus describes many disasters that are going to accompany the completion of all these things. Uh, Jesus prophesies again here that this world will experience disasters in the religious, political, and natural realms. Let's consider the religious disasters, you could call them. Jesus tells his disciples to be on guard for what I would call religious disasters. Uh, Even in our own lifetime, there have been plenty of teachers uh, who have turned out to be religious disasters. Their life and their teaching have turned out to be a disaster for themselves and for the people that follow them. Uh, Jesus here speaks of people who are going to come in his name and say, I am he. You know, the, the phrase, I am he, is ego eimi in Greek. That's the divine name, even. So perhaps they're certainly coming and saying that they're the Christ. There is Christ's figure. They might even be going farther and saying that they themselves are God. Jesus says that people are going to come in his name and say that. Uh, he's speaking about people who will claim to be the Christ. And in Jesus' own day, there were certainly false Christs. There were Christ pretenders. In Acts chapter 5, uh, Gamaliel in the Sanhedrin, he notes a man named Theudas who led an uprising of 400 people and led them astray. He mentions as well Judas the Galilean who led others. And both of these guys got crushed and their followers were dispersed and scattered. Many of them died. Doubtless there were more people who proclaimed to be the Christ even after Jesus. Uh, a little historical note, in 132 A.D. there was the Bar Kokhba Rebellion, and there was a man named Simon Bar Kokhba. His name means he's the son of the star, and he was a messianic figure uh, to beat all, except for he didn't. He got, as well, got crushed, and there was massive bloodshed in Israel. The Talmud calls him Simon Bar Kokhba, Simon the Deceiver. Uh, Jesus didn't want his disciples getting caught up in movements of all sorts of Christ figures who would come. Uh, People were going to come and claim to be somebody and claim to call people to be followers, and Jesus didn't want them to be caught up in that. And he doesn't want that for us either. I think as we consider this, we want to be careful 
about the political and religious movements that we attach ourselves to. Uh, Sometimes we can be tempted to separate our political thinking on one side and then our thoughts about Christ on another, and that simply won't do. Nothing is neutral in this world. All of life and all of our thought must be captive to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think it's important for us that in everything we give ourselves to, that we understand and see how that is tied into our pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who deceit, who deceive, Jesus describes them here, uh, they, what they do is they lead people astray. I think a fair question for ourselves, for our hearts and lives, is who is leading our thought life day to day? Who are the voices that you give your ears to throughout the week? Are they pointing you to Christ? Are they saying things that are consistent with Christ? We should think about that. We should think about the messages that we bring in. Are they all consistent with Christ? Who he is and what he said. We should be asking that whenever we hear anybody. You should be asking that when I get up here and talk. Is what I'm saying consistent with the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are people saying, follow me? You know, the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You see that? He's calling people to imitate him only in so much as he is imitating Christ. False Christs say, follow me, I am the Christ. Or follow me, I'll bring deliverance. We must be on guard to ensure that uh, Christ is the one that we seek and that the scriptures are the things that guide us. Uh, We want to give due diligence to make sure that the voices that speak into our lives are consistent with the voice of the shepherd. It's not just religious disasters that Jesus describes here. There's also political disasters as well. Uh, Jesus mentions wars and rumors of wars. He talks about nation rising up against nation. Uh, There are disasters. He's talking about here the political and national level. Just think about the war in Ukraine. It has been a disaster for Ukrainians, and it has been a disaster for Russians too. War has always had a disastrous nature to it. Uh, There were certainly plenty of wars in the first century after Jesus' teaching, and wars have continued all throughout history. Cain committed the first act of fratricide in murdering his brother, and humanity has been following his example ever since. This will be another sign of the end, as we're going to see. Also, uh, it's a sign of the end, and yet any given war isn't proof that the end has come. Jesus is going to point then to a third category, uh, you could say as natural disasters. Jesus mentions both earthquakes and famines. These are just two of many types of natural disasters. Earthquakes come suddenly and destruction is swift. Um, We've certainly heard about and seen the news reports of the earthquake in Turkey and in Syria. Uh, I think the death toll is just under 60,000 people that died in that earthquake. Uh, You've got Uh, an example of a natural disaster where the earth itself seems to rise up and kill people. Well, famines, on the other hand, are generally weather-related, certainly made worse by corrupt governments and by war. Uh, Even today, there's a very bad famine in the Horn of Africa. Uh, There are, I think, something like 36 million people facing hunger 
uh, around the Horn of Africa. In Somalia last year, a report said that 43,000 people died of starvation, and more than half of them were under the age of five. I mean, it is simply heartbreaking. Natural disasters can bring profound loss. Jesus mentions that these natural disasters will increase uh, as the end is coming. As we look throughout human history, we can count uh, all sorts of natural disasters that have taken human lives. And we can see as well on the war front, there's been wars that have soaked this earth with blood. Uh, And we can also see all sorts of false teachers over the last 2,000 years and still today. Uh, An important question we ask, we should ask as we consider these prophecies, are, are they for the time of Jesus as he's writing? Are they for the first audience only? Or are they for today? Are they future yet? Um, Are all of them future or all of them back then or some of them both ways? The way you could put it is, should we be looking backwards for fulfillment of this or should we be looking forward for fulfillment fulfillment of what Jesus says here? Uh, I understand it that Mark 13, uh, there are some aspects that have clearly been fulfilled in history. There are some that I believe are clearly yet future. And there are some things that we'll read about that are true in absolutely every single generation of those who follow Christ. There's a couple things here that point me in that direction. We'll consider more as we get farther into Mark chapter 13. Uh, First, in verse 7, Jesus says, When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. So there's going to be wars. Wars are going to be a sign, but... It doesn't mean the end has come yet. I think this kind of points us forward that there may be a longer time for fulfillment. Uh, And particularly, Jesus is saying here that we would not be alarmed every time we hear about a war as though this is it. Um, These things are going to happen. It doesn't mean the end has arrived yet. Uh, Again, I think this kind of a statement is pointing us farther down the road. Further, in verse 8, Jesus describes all of these events in this way. He says that uh, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus talks about all of these disasters as signs of things that are going to be, and yet he says that they are but the beginning of the birth pains, that the end is not yet. What is striking is if we look at history, we can find all sorts of fulfillment in the first century to a lot of things that are mentioned here, at least partial fulfillments. Uh, the temple of, in Jerusalem is destroyed, so you can cross that one off the list. Uh, there are also wars and false Christs and natural disasters in that time as well. There's other things that just seem clearly to be fulfilled yet. And so we'll, again, we'll see more of that in the future. Uh, But the most obvious of those is that the Lord Jesus Christ has not returned yet. Uh, In verse 8, Jesus describes religious and political and natural disasters. He says that they are the birth pains. They are the contractions that lead up to birth. Uh, I think that the illustration that he gives here is how we should view trouble in this world as we anticipate the Lord's return and the wrap-up of this this world. There are going to be wars. There are going to be natural disasters. There will be false Christs. There will be persecutions. We'll see that next week especially. Um, all of these things are going to come and go in waves. 
and they will be pointers to the end. Uh, but there is a future in time, future time, in which the baby is coming, so to speak. There's going to be no more back and forth at that point. No more waiting around. At that time, it will be time. And it will all happen surely and swiftly. Uh, and it will be a trial on this earth beyond any other. So is Jesus talking about back then or future ahead? I think he's speaking of both. And there's things in this passage that will point in both directions. Some are past, some are future. And most of them will occur in every generation until he comes. There will be challenges and trials, but that does not mean that the end has come. Jesus says these things must take place. There is coming a day, though, as we think about it, Jesus talks about the birth pains, there, there's coming a day in which everything will be elevated to a 10, and that's going to be the final push. That's going to be the season that the great wrap-up takes place. But until that day, we need to keep watch. Jesus says in verse 5, see that no one leads you astray. I think the best way for us to do that is we think about how do we not be led astray. Jesus is telling us, keep an eye out. How do we do that? I think the best way to do that is for us to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think the best way for us to see false Christs is to know the true Christ. Now, it is a temptation for us that in our affliction, in our challenges, uh, that we set our eyes on ourselves, set our eyes on our situation, and not put our eyes on Christ. The trials of our life call us to put our eyes inward, uh, but we've got to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's how we make it through the hardship of this life. I think as well that's how we recognize uh, him when he comes and who claims to be him but isn't. When you know the true Christ as he's revealed in his word, that's how you will recognize and stay clear of people who would lead you astray. Uh, the Christian way in this world is hard. The encouragement for us here is to keep our eyes on the Savior. He will lead you through the hardships of your life today. We might not find ourselves in that final generation. We might. I think it's very possible we could be. Uh, but we might not. Regardless, we have to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only one who can sustain us in every generation until he comes. Uh, we should never think, well, uh, I, don't, I, don't need, I don't need to be ready because who knows, maybe it's farther down the road. Uh, that's not where we should be. We should be ready for him. Uh, we also don't want to say, well, I, I'm going to give everything up because it's happening tomorrow. I think we need to be faithful. We'll be seeing that as well as we continue. We have to put our hand to the plow and work until he comes. These may be hard days, and there may be harder days ahead of us, but we can look to and trust our Savior who will lead us through them. Well, I want to ask now for the men to prepare for communion and Maggie to come to play.